The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello everybody, welcome to the program. This is Sportbox, the headlines this hour. The S&P 500 and the Dow dip lower after last week's records as the spread of the Delta variant spikes demand fears, pushing U.S. energy stocks lower. Meanwhile, U.S. job openings hit a record high of 10 million by the end of June, and the taper talk continues with the Fed's Eric Rosengren and other central bankers suggesting a quicker reduction of stimulus measures. I don't think asset purchases are having the desired impact on really promoting employment and maybe resulting in prices uh, going up in sectors that we don't necessarily want them to go up. A losing battleground, the Tencent-backed video game maker Crafton sinks in its South Korean debut as fears of China's regulatory crackdown continue to worry investors in the sector. Germany's BioNTech hikes guidance after seeing second quarter profits soar to nearly 3 billion euros amid surging vaccine demand. And Code Red for Humanity, a UN report warns global warming could rise to extreme levels and be beyond reach without, quote, immediate and rapid reductions. So, very good morning, everybody. So, it's going to be another one of those choppy weeks, isn't it, given the combination of Fed presidents speaking and the data points that we get. I think we talked a little bit about this yesterday, but obviously the inflation number tomorrow will be the key data point for the week here. Um, 4.3% is what's penciled in by the analysts as against the 4.5% we had in June. So the question is, will the July number support the commentary we're getting from the likes of Bostick and Rosengren, who are increasingly trying to manage market expectations around the likely that tapering of this 120 billion monthly bond buying program will begin in September or ultimately in the fourth quarter of the year here. Whether you buy in or not at this stage probably doesn't matter. The markets, though, are beginning to reprice what they see as earlier tapering. So they are adjusting their own expectations around uh, uh, what is happening with tapering interest rate decisions probably still a long way away yet but that's why we had a bit of a dip yesterday on those key cyclical stocks uh, the nasdaq managing to put in a positive close to the session here uh, taking back some of the uh, losses we've seen in recent sessions what did the Treasury markets do on the back of all those comments from Fed governors? We've got a little bit of a firming of the yield here. 131 is where we sit on the 10-year. Uh, the dollar also getting a little bit of firmer support from this narrative that actually it may be time to start doing something. 
rebound in the commodity story. Uh, a modest rebound, but a rebound nonetheless. Let's have a look at the oil uh, and just give you a quick snapshot on where we are on WTI and Brent at this point. Well, we're some way away from those mid-70s that we saw in recent weeks. But as you can see, uh, we do seem to have put a little bit of a flaw under the recent very rapid move lower that we've seen in the oil prices. And again, the question to ask yourself, is oil reflecting what is happening in the interest rate decision, uh, the the talk of tapering, the Fed commentary? Is it all about uh, the oil markets trying to uh, understand what demand will look like going forward if we do get a modest change in the um, monetary environment? Or is this a reflection of nervousness around China? We have seen a slight downtick in Chinese demand as uh, domestic demand there, we think, has just come off its peak flows. Whatever you uh, think is the right answer, it's clear that the market has decided that this is the time just to go a little lighter on energy. So even as yesterday we saw financials, one of the better sectors, energy took it on the chin. Here's a quick snapshot on the S&P energy chart, 1.48%. Uh, having said that, if you've been in the ride uh, year to date, we are 28% higher on this uh, particular quote. Uh, let's have a look at uh, silver and gold just to see how the precious metals are doing. Well, again, arresting some of the recent decline here, a little bit of a rebound on the precious metals story this morning. And the Asian markets, how are they managing? A couple of interesting stories in that part of the world. Obviously, we are continuing to focus on the China regulatory story and any updates around growth. But there's a South Korean IPO, a gaming stock that hasn't gone particularly well, and that may tie back into the China regulation story. But for the time being, I think, Karen, with inflation and that number on CPI just around the corner tomorrow, no surprise then we've got a big focus on jobs and the jobs market and the condition of the U.S. economy for employment. Well, we've also had some very strong cues, haven't we, on the back of that non-farm payrolls report, a bumper number that uh, came out Friday. We've now had the jolts report as well, and the latest is that job openings in the United States have surged above 10 million for the first time. Uh, that is according to the Labor Department. The monthly job openings and labor turnover survey for June shot up by 590,000, easily topping forecasts. Leisure and hospitality have the highest level of openings as data shows the quitting rate near its all-time high. Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic believes the FOMC can start tapering bond buying from the fourth quarter, telling reporters inflation is already at its target now. This was echoed by Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin, who said consumer prices have met the central bank's goal. Bostic added tapering could start earlier if the labour market continues its recent strong gains. It comes amid a growing chorus of voices from the US central bank with James Bullard, Robert Kaplan and Christopher Waller tilting to the hawkish side. Meanwhile, Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren has told AP the Fed should start to tighten policy this fall. On the labor markets, I'd say we've made very significant progress. And I would expect if we continue to have reports like we've had over the last two with very substantial uh, payroll employment gains, 
that by the September meeting, uh, we would, in my view, uh, meet the substantial further progress uh, criteria. And that that would imply um, starting to taper sometime this fall. Let's bring in Christian Lawrence, senior cross-asset strategist at Rabobank. Christian, the message seems to be coming in loud and clear from these Fed presidents that they think it is time for a change in the bond purchasing program. Are we still basically looking at Jackson Hole for a, a keynote decision? Well, that's certainly been the, the focus of the market for quite a while now. And we've seen some sizable positions being put on around that date, implying that some sort of a, a shift is expected. Now, I do think the Fed is going to be very clear here. It's going to telegraph things well in advance. And that is, of course, what we have seen over recent months. But we do need to put things in perspective here. Uh, 120 billion in uh, additional purchases every single month is a huge number. So even slowing that pace down is still a lot of stimulus being uh, added to the system. So I wouldn't call this a, a dramatic tightening in any way, shape or form. This is more about slowing down the pace. And I think the whole process is going to be very gradual indeed, as the Fed certainly doesn't want to spook the market. One thing's for sure, this isn't 2013. I don't see a taper tantrum happening. Conditions mean, though, that we are incredibly sensitive to any modest shift in monetary policy at this stage. And I thought it was interesting that even as we saw a weak overall session on the S&P and the Dow yesterday, the financials seem to do better on the hope that we are now starting perhaps to think about a shift in the interest rate environment. Um, what do you feel about the uh, financials and is there still an opportunity to buy them as we see this shift or repricing, if you like, in expectations? Well, of course, the financials do like a steeper curve, and that tends to be the initial reaction you see to any sort of tapering move, that we would see that 10-year part of the curve move a little bit higher in yield terms, and that is beneficial for the banking sector. I mean, in general, when we're looking at equities at the moment, it feels a little bit like tails I win, heads you lose, in that any move lower in yields is certainly beneficial for uh, growth for tech stocks. And we've seen that with some of the safe haven flows that have entered into the US Treasury market as a result of global uh, Delta variant fears. And of course, we do need to bear in mind that the Treasury market is still that global safe haven of choice. But when we're seeing yields higher, driven by perhaps better growth expectations, then that tends, tends to boost more of the value sectors, of course, of which uh, financials is a huge part. So for now, it does appear that equities are going to remain supported despite these sizable moves that we're seeing in uh, US Treasury markets. Has to be said that being a bond trader, a rate trader now is a, is a lot more difficult than it was a few years ago. Christian, I want to bring up the inflation outlook with you because we've had a change in sentiment around commodities as China has shown a little bit of cooling off and those Southeast Asian markets are fast growing quarters of the world also still battling the pandemic. That's uh, taken uh, commodities lower at this stage. And we've also had a Goldilocks report on the labour front out of the United States. We're seeing strong job gains, but not a huge escalation in wage pressure. What does that mean now as we put the pieces together on the inflationary outlook? look in the United States? Well, certainly we need to get used to much bigger um, moves in Treasury yields simply because of the 
huge number of variables that are driving things in other in uh, conflicting directions, as you just mentioned. Uh, it is inflation week in the U.S. We see CPI inflation, PPI inflation, import export numbers, and these are going to be looked at on a far more granular basis. As we know that the CPI um, inflation report, well, the monthly increases, nearly a third for three consecutive months has been driven by those used cars and uh, uh, trucks numbers, which, of course, have been impacted by supply chain issues with respect to microchips. So we're going to be looking to see if some of these factors that could be argued to be transitory are still leading the way in terms of driving CPI inflation. But the other thing, as you alluded to, is wage growth. And if we look at it on a real basis, we adjust for inflation. Well, wage growth is actually at the slowest pace it's been since 2008. So it is very much a question of inflation. Is it being driven by the cost side, the, the, the supply side? Or are we going to see some signs of it being driven more by the demand side? And that push and pull will be key because if we don't see the wage growth to accompany the supply side driven inflationary pressures, well, that's likely to hit aggregate demand further out and could prove disinflationary rather than inflationary. Uh, Christian, on a similar note, one of the big clouds overhanging the markets is the impact of the Delta variant, whether it's slowing down the economic reopening that we've been witnessing. There's been a huge hope that you'd see employers bring back more workers to the office from September. That seems to have been altered slightly. Also, some doubts around what plays out with uh, many pupils, students going back to schools as well. What's the impact here as we think about a job market that was adding, what, almost a, a million workers in the month of July? Can we sustain this pace if we have a, a slowing down of the reopening phase because of the Delta variant? Well, I'd say that's certainly one of the main risks we're facing at the moment. And as you just alluded to, of course, that poses a significant risk, particularly as we move into flu season. But it's not as big an issue for a country like the US or, or Canada or the UK that has relatively high vaccination rates. But of course, the other big thing with the Delta variant is the impact it's having in countries with low vaccination rates. And as I mentioned earlier, the Treasury market is still that global safe haven market of choice. So we could well see inflows coming from the global story, uh, driving yields lower. And if we do see that Delta variant posing some risk to lockdowns in the US and dampening the labour market recovery, then again, that could potentially weigh on yields at the long end. A lot of push and pull right now. And quite frankly, with the Delta variant, we still don't know exactly how this is going to pan out. But it is certainly a very different story for countries with high vaccination rates than low vaccination rates. So stronger for a better story for DM than it is for EM for sure. Yeah, just talking about DM in Europe for a moment here, Christian. We've got a ZEW number out of Germany, I think, later in the morning. Um, it's not getting a lot of attention, but we are keeping a, a weathered eye on the ability, I think, of European markets to decouple from the US if we get a clear signal about the prospect of tapering in September. Do you think that's a possibility? Can we still continue to make gains in European equity markets if the Fed has signaled taper, tapering happens this year? Um, I certainly think that's still possible if we assume that the, the Delta variant doesn't have a huge impact and lead to, to big renewed lockdowns within the, the European area. But there's always a limit to how far we can see these major economies diverge. Financial markets are so interlinked. This is something we saw back in 2018 when uh, U.S. Treasuries rose above 3% at the 10-year sector. At that point, the uh, U.S. Treasury market was essentially both a high yielder and the safe haven of choice. So when we see that anchoring of rates in Europe, 
that does certainly have an impact on US markets as well. But that's not to say that we can't see more in the way of divergence in the coming months. And the likelihood is that we probably will. Uh, Christian, as you mentioned, safe havens. Can I bring up bullion? Because we have seen that huge drop uh, at the start of this month in gold prices. Where to from here? Yeah, certainly, of course, we, we saw some big moves over the weekend for sure. And I think the uh, the classical relationship that's so often cited in your, your textbook of, of gold versus inflation hasn't been working that well of late. And of course, there is also the added impact of the crypto market clearly taking some of the shine away from gold. I tend to think there's probably a little bit more upside and that the uh, the pullback we've seen gives a bit of an opportunity to, to reload on longs. But this isn't to say that the gold market's about to set itself on fire and that we're going to see huge upside from here. But I do think current levels are attractive. Christian, we're going to say goodbye to you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate the time. Christian Lawrence, Senior Cross-Asset Strategist at Rabobank. Um, You remember Enron? Well, there was a terrific book on Enron called uh, The Smartest Men in the Room. Um, I raise that because we look at private equity these days and we look at uh, a company like SoftBank, for example, that invests in businesses it thinks are going to shoot the lights out. And we think these guys must really know what's going on. And yet, as we wait on SoftBank first quarter numbers, the expectation is for a loss. We will talk about that and how the business is negotiating the latest China regulatory crackdown when we come back. Stay with us. And if you missed any of our interviews or analysis on inflation, jobs or taper talk, don't forget you can check out the Squawk Box podcast available wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. SoftBank is expected to report a quarterly net loss of around $1.6 billion. That's when the Japanese heavyweight announces its latest results in just under an hour's time. Let's get out to Rosanna for more, who's been looking at some of the detail. Rosanna, this is a company that is famed for its bets on technology companies, but infamous of late for those big bets on some of the, the stock trades. The Nasdaq whale, it was called, and wound some of those trades. But still, I think the market is wondering just how it's been performing of late. What can you tell us? Well, we're going to find out very soon, Karen. But you might remember back at the full year results back in March, Masayoshi Son, chairman and CEO of SoftBank himself, saying he doesn't like the term venture capitalist. He prefers the term vision capitalist for what SoftBank does. We're expecting these Q1 earnings in the next hour or so. The flashes will come across the wires. Don't forget, this is the month's April through June, Japanese financial year. We'll get those flashes 3 p.m. Japan Standard Time, 2 p.m. Singapore, Hong Kong time, followed by an online presentation by Masayoshi Son himself. What we're looking out for is, according to those Reuters Refinitiv estimates, that $1.6 billion net loss that could emerge, as you already mentioned, and fueling that 
might well be this combination of market dynamics we've been seeing the last few months, a virus and inflation concerns, of course. But as you mentioned, there's SoftBank's exposure to China. That's the word on everyone's lips this time around because it has that sizable backing of Alibaba already. But it's vision fund bets on Chinese tech and education sector companies squarely in the crosshairs of China's recent regulatory crackdown. That's what we're going to be watching closely. Several companies in the vision funds portfolio, vision fund one and two, that is, have listed in this most recent quarter, four of them are US-listed Chinese companies, including Zhangmen Education, ride-hailing company Didi. The Vision Fund has a 20.2% stake in that, and Full Truck Alliance, which it holds a 20.3% stake in. We were checking earlier the listings, uh, the, the performance since listing for Zhangmen Education, for example, down 70% tells you a little bit about the kind of impact that company alone could have on the Vision Fund's performance. And overall, what we're looking at is what those companies in total will have on SoftBank's performance and what Masayoshi Sun is going to say about the ongoing exposure to China. Are they going to hedge a little bit? There is diversification in the portfolio. You've got stakes in other giants like Uber, like South Korean e-tailer Coupang, which had a lot to do with their bumper $37 billion full-year net profit reported back in March. And a final reminder, SoftBank actually prefers to focus on net asset value when it can. The group reporting an NAV of 26 trillion yen full-year results back in March, a net equity IRR for both Vision Funds 1 and 2 a whopping 43%. So be watching out for those numbers as well, guys. So, so Rosanna, just briefly here, um, as you report it, then we are looking for a big uh, negative number ultimately here. Um, will that be seen as, again, um, another uh, black mark, if you like, against the technology investing strategy of Masayoshi-san and the Vision Fund, or do you think people will just shrug it off as the impact of a cycle that's been difficult to negotiate? Well, Jeff, I think the answer to that will be in Son's presentation, which will come about an hour and a half after those earnings flashes. We're going to hear Masayoshi Son, I would predict, saying things that he similarly said in the past. I People always think I'm going to be proven wrong, but I show them right in the long term. Yes, they made a mistake with uh, some WeWork bets early on, but they have turned that around. For a lot of investors, what they're going to be looking out for is any news on the share buyback strategy, because people were somewhat disappointed with the decision made on that and the full year results back in March. So we'll be watching out for details on that as well and that was reflected in the share price of SoftBank at the time. Sorry, just remind us what is the dollar loss that's expected? I'll have to get back to you on that one Jeff when I'm back on air in about half an hour's oh, time. Okay sorry to catch you out uh, we will move on Rosanna thank you so much for that we'll catch up with uh, Rosanna as we talk about those SoftBank numbers as they come through. Apologies for putting you on the spot. Let's move on. Uh, let's talk about Crafton. Shares in game maker Crafton are sharply lower in their South Korean debut amid concerns over its valuation and wider industry pressure from Chinese regulators. Sherry is taking a look at the story for us here. So not a great day early doors for Crafton. That's right. And of course, so when we're talking about this uh, Tencent-backed PUBG developer, a lot of uh, voices are concerned about uh, the valuations, as well as, as you mentioned, China uh, industry crackdown. And uh, we did hear from one local brokerage commentary uh, coming through this morning on CNBC that investors are getting more selective, uh, smarter about the IPOs seen in South Korea. So crafted raising 3.8 billion U.S. dollars. This is the second largest 
largest in South Korea market. But now this is sharp fall and now below uh, the issue price of a 498,000 Korean won per piece. So it really goes to show how there was that valuation pushback from the regulators themselves in South Korea. In fact, this game developer had to go back and revise their prospectus and cut down on their targeted offering and valuation even before this actual debut on the Cosby. And you mentioned, well, I mentioned a Tencent factor here. They're very close. And Tencent actually has one seat on the seven-member board at Crafton. It has a 13.6% stake in Crafton share. This close relationship could, could, could be a good thing because it is believed to be the major driver of Crafton's revenue. But at the same time, remember the spiritual opium commentary that was recently carried uh, in a Chinese state-run media that was really targeted at the online gaming industry itself. So that could be yet another factor that spooked a lot of pre-IPO investors as well. And uh, some of them are selling out of this stock on a day like this. And there's another concern. This company is very much dependent on PUBG and PUBG alone. Sure, the company says that they're going to go for more M&A action on the global scene. They're going to make investments in emerging markets as well as deep learning technology. In fact, they also say that they're going to become this global content provider, getting into other sectors like movies, webtoons, documentaries, or a short-form content. But uh, a lot of investors are scratching their heads and asking, would that be a possibility for Crafton? And of course, uh, EY, for example, says that it's not exactly easy to get another successful game in this industry. So those are some of the risk factors that Crafton is facing at the moment. Guys, it's back to you. Terrific, Sherry. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.